0: by my account we are on and we are live uh, if you happen to be around and you're joining us uh, welcome uh, we've got the comments open for this so uh, you are welcome to join us um, and hopefully you are around for that um, but of course uh, what we normally do I'll save everyone the speech but you know the story uh, we like to just uh, record it online get it on live create this opportunity for some interaction even if uh, no one's around and uh and then it goes straight onto the podcast i think that's working well uh would love your feedback on that um but let's get this thing going i've got a very special guest with me uh, you might be able to see him in a little block in the corner right there but let's make this more interesting mm-hmm. Thank you to Jeremy Casella for that wonderful play-in, Indelible Grace. Go check it out. If you haven't seen Indelible Grace and their stuff, or Jeremy Casella and his new album, do go check that out. Really thankful to that brother uh, for allowing us to make use of that song. Pilgrim Theology is what we're doing. Uh, Two-age sojourning, uh, even during a coronavirus lockdown. What a great time to sojourn, right, Lee? <laughs> it's, <Amen. laughs> uh, it's the best time, right? Um, and don't don't say we don't do anything for you. We're providing major extra content during the lockdown. So hopefully enjoying that as well. Um but like I say, uh today's special. We've got um Dr. Charles Lee irons with us. And um I've been uh pestering Lee for a while to get onto the show with me. And so I'm thankful that he he finally yielded <laughs> and uh he's with us and uh he is a, a very very special guest. Um I have uh, spoken about it many times. Uh, my dissertation now is is uh Really, uh, it, it it mentions him voluminously. Maybe that's one way to put it. It's like half of my footnotes are just leons, leons, leons everywhere. And uh, and so, you know, over the years, just uh, checking out his website, um, Upper Register, um, and his blog, just been incredibly helpful. I, I would say, you know, if I, I don't want to be like sacrilegious, or but I would say even more helpful than Meredith Klein. I might wow. dare to say, oh, that, yeah. That's that's a, a, think
1: you're pushing it there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, firstly, you don't use triple barrel words. Uh, you know, that, that's 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 the thing, and uh, just yeah. uh, what I've really appreciated. And I've always typically done this. I've said, listen, um, you know, you want to get you want to get into Meredith Klein. That's great, but don't start with Meredith Klein. Start with Lee Irons. Start with Charles. Uh, at least, sorry, um, uh, Chris Cahi. Uh, start with uh, some guy that's try to just show you the ropes before you get into. Client, uh, it will help. Uh, certainly, that's what I did, and um, I've really, really benefited from your stuff online. So, very much appreciative of all that. Um, Lee's also, you know, put out a ton of work. Um, just quick, make make quick mention of it. Uh, related to client, firstly, I think you you wrote the article, and Klein was kind of the guy in your corner when you wrote this one. This is the, the yeah. Genesis debate.
1: So, on that three views book on the different interpretations of the days of creation. It started out as something that I wrote. Uh, this is way back in like 1998. Wow, When amazing. I was going through the process of getting ordained in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, yeah, <laughs> and there was some controversy about my views on that and the fact that I held to the framework interpretation. So I wrote an, a, an article or a paper yeah. that I presented to the presbytery, and then um, that became the seed. From there. Uh, one of the members of the Presbytery liked the article and said, Hey, let's turn it into a three views book. So I revised the article, sent it to Meredith to have him make his edits and revisions. So it was a team effort, but it originated as a seed from my original paper on that. So, yeah.
0: It is a fantastic article. I really, um, again, it's something I always recommend. I keep a, uh, high copy on I me mean, for well i think it 's not on Kindle at the moment. I think you do have to go out and buy a uh, a copy yeah. of that um and get it sent to you, which is a mission if you live in new zealand let 's put it that way uh, you know <laughs> it means you triple the book's price and you, you you know so forth but but uh it's worth it it's well worth it because it's just a good solid you know accessible uh intro into the framework view and then plus it interacts with the other views, which is gold um so Absolutely. I highly recommend getting that um and then um uh, I've got another one here, which I recently picked up. Honestly, um, if, he, if he, this was uh, this was actually uh, his his uh, work, Christian Body Politic, uh, man, this great. I think you've also got that on your on your upper register um, yes. page, though, right? The Reformed Theocrats yes. article. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you don't have to buy this one, but you should because right. it's actually it's actually really. I mean, these essays are amazing. I'm just amazed that this is buried somewhere. I mean, I just sort of stumbled on it by accident. Yeah. And uh, it's just got some gold in you. It, it really does. Uh, you yeah, want to tell so us a little bit about this? My to
1: that, it's just a, an essay uh, critiquing theonomy right. and, and arguing that theonomy is better understood as a form of theocracy and then uh, arguing that that's based on a biblical theological mistake and that biblical theology helps us to clarify that what god was doing with israel in setting up the theocracy of israel was not to be a model for the nations but it was some it was a special eschatological sign of the kingdom of god yeah and so it has a very special purpose in redemptive history and shouldn't be used as a blueprint for modern day political philosophy
0: yeah so uh, a great again a great article um and you know so go check out upper register you get that and more at upper register um that's the kind of quality article really that you'll find there um it's been so helpful for me in terms of just thinking through the issue as well um uh lee's just got a gift i think Uh, there's no other way to put it in terms of taking some really complex issues and we'll see that in the article we'll discuss today as well and just um just just putting it forward i mean I, i rarely come across people that write so lucidly and i feel you just have a solid grasp on what you're saying and just put it forward in this uh, amazingly lucid way so can't I, recommend. I don't
1: always feel lucid you know there are many times where i'm confused myself in the fog wow. of different thoughts but i just f- work at trying to figure it out myself wow and then making sure that i can explain it to others
0: do you feel that so, writing itself helps you oh with yeah that?
1: absolutely writing right. is that's the best way to yeah. clarify your own thoughts totally just start so writing so
0: you start off in a bit of a muddle sometimes and, Always. and, and then you, your first draft yeah. looks looks terrible and then you redrafted and okay, yeah. that's good to know. I find that deeply encouraging because uh, <laughs> that certainly is my process. In fact, I read through my first draft. I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to give up at that point. And, and uh, then you
1: realize this doesn't even make, I, I contradicted myself. I started off <laughs> saying this and then I ended up saying that wait a minute, you know, and then you realize I'm not even clear in my own mind what I'm trying to say.
0: Right. Right. Totally. (laughs) For sure. Well, they reckon that uh, all the secret of all good writing is rewriting, you know, and uh, I suppose that's, that's what we're saying. Um, Yeah. Well, that's really good to know because I think there is the temptation to look at that stuff. And um, well, I often say to my wife, you know, we love listening to your sermons and, and uh, I'm just like, again, so lucid. You can tell you've thought it through, really appreciate that about your preaching. And uh, you know, so my, my, my process to go, wow, that was a great sermon. I'm, I'm quitting, you know, because I'm like, I, you know, that's not me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe if I just keep going, maybe if I keep rewriting, I, I can get there. That's good news. Good news yeah, for the muddled. Um, and then um, on, on the point of, of being helped. Um, and by the way, just before I go into this, Mr. Ari Blino, I see you, brother. I see you online. Um, and, uh, dude, all I can say to you is that you are I mean, you're getting your fix of 2 so sojourner. That's all I'm saying. I hope that it's helping you out. And uh, yeah, this is gold uh, that that we're watching this right now. Um, All right. Another book that I just want to recommend before we get going. Um, This is a uh, syntax guide for readers of the Greek New Testament. Uh, And uh, Lee wrote this as well. Um, Because you did your undergrad in in languages and you just started off on a a good foot there, right?
1: Yeah, I did my undergrad at uh, UCLA in uh, classical studies classical Greek and Latin to some extent, but mostly Greek. Wow. So
0: and uh, and and that, I mean, my brother and I are constantly joking about that. If we could relive our lives, yeah I think I don't think that that would be a better move
1: <laughs> that no. you
0: could make than studying languages for your undergrad. I mean what a great move. You know how did you have the insight to do that? That was we were all doing stupid things like you know bachelor <laughs> of commerce or marketing or some irrelevant nonsense exactly. and uh, we we were wasting our lives you know. Communications. <laughs> oh my goodness. It just it just the the thought yeah. pains yeah. me every time. Um but wow that's excellent. And anyway so where I was going with that is um uh, this book is so helpful uh, just for providing that gap. I mean, if you're, mm-hmm. um, it feels like I have been um, learning first year Greek for I don't know, like ten years or something, and I still I feel like I'm I, I'm I'm more on the first year moment than I've ever been after ten years. So I don't even know how that works. I've been going backwards while going forwards. Uh, I think I kind of form you just a unique have to category.
1: Plunge in. You just have to stop studying first year greek and just plunge in <laughs> and, you just, and just start reading the greek new testament <laughs> well you know it actually the,
0: the the first time i heard someone say that was when you put yeah. out those that series of helps on on upper register yeah. where you were just like listen you just got to start reading it you just got to start yeah. j- diving in half an hour a day read out aloud and since you since you did that and that was quite a while ago now but um you know, I've, that's, that's pretty much been my practice and it's definitely helped. I can't, I'm not going to even try and say that I've, uh, you know, uh, nailed Greek or anything like that, but, um, it's definitely helped just sort of, as you say, moving you into this almost new, it's almost like I, I, the, the desire to grasp the basics sometimes gets in the way. Um, and then you just, you just want to get a feel for the language that you wouldn't normally have if you just get out there and read it. But what I will say though is to have something like this with you when you do plunge in, uh, is, is huge because of course every yeah. second, while I'm not, I'm trying to stop, um, you know, my brain getting in the way and, and, uh, I always want to stop and go, okay, what exactly is happening over there? And then it kind of, it just, uh, sabotages any reading time that I have. Um, yeah. so I don't, I don't, I try not to reference this all the time, but there are some times where I'm just like, I can't help it. I have to figure out what's going on over here. And, uh, typically whenever I do that, you've covered it and um it's it's just really helpful to be able to have something immediate you don't have to get online to 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 find out you don't have to go on us. you don't have to kill your devotion time you just you just basically open a book quickly have a reference and then keep going um so again uh, a syntax guide for readers of the greek new testament just a, a great i use um the the little greek uh, english interlinear with rsv um And uh, and this and it just works great. um, Those two together. So thank you for that, brother. It's really really awesome. And then is your PhD published at this point? Yes, it is. Is that because I saw it on Lagos? You know, I don't know if it was accessible on Lagos. It was advertised on Lagos.
1: I don't know if it's coming to Lagos or not.
0: Okay, uh, because that would have been yeah. All right, so so it is published. But Uh, it is published in
1: in hard copy uh, through More CBEC. It's okay. pretty expensive. It's is gonna, it one of those
0: hundred buck ones.
1: It's going to be about a hundred bucks. Uh, uh, but yeah. I'm working on. I'm in discussions right now with an American publisher that uh, hopefully will get the rights from the German publisher okay. to do a, an American reprint that will be substantially cheaper.
0: Oh, that'd be amazing. So maybe because, next um, year. Or so. so fantastic. All right. Could well. That's something to just watch out for because um, that. But the I mean, title
1: of that is the righteousness of God. And uh, basically, it's a, a word study on righteousness and a critique of N.T. Wright's view that the righteousness of God, when Paul uses that phrase in Romans 1.17 and, and elsewhere, uh, means the, fa- the covenant faithfulness of God. Yeah, that's what NT yeah. Wright argues. And so yeah. I do a word study to say, can the word righteousness mean covenant faithfulness? And I conclude that it does not mean that. Uh, yeah. And so, a righteousness Copious of God amounts is, of
0: study. Um, yeah. you know, I can imagine a whole dissertation surrounded on that. I mean, you're going to come out with a pretty keen result yeah. at the end. So that's yeah. great. Um, so it's
1: the righteousness that comes from God as a gift and right. is credited to us by faith. So.
0: Amen. Well, that, that's fantastic. A slam dunk, um, are, are on that. And, um, I'm looking forward to, to, to reading that and getting hold of that in the future. Um, and then of course the other, um, the contribution you've made is, um, in terms of the first shift for Klein's own. um, cr- cr- it was called creator redeemer consumator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you wrote an article there. I think it's also available on upper register. Is that right? Or do they have to buy the, yes. Okay. It's also yeah. It's on, on, upper register. Yep. it's on there. So, um, I have got the the in front of me, though. So one way or another, um, if people want to track with that, um, just another reason to go to um, to Upper Register. Uh, but uh, this article redefining merit—I mean, it just—it shines in the book. It's it's one of the, it's one of the, um, it, it really it, was, it just was incredibly helpful for me to see the 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 matrix, as you put it, out of which mm-hmm. covenant theology was born, and why all these inherent tensions are at play uh, with the discussions on the covenant of works in merit. Um, I, I just, it was, you know, again, it's like, unless you're reading in that period in the middle ages, unless you're aware of that debate to that extent, it's, you're, you're not going to um, have the insight that this article would otherwise give you. So um, if you're at all interested in that, and hopefully we'll uh, uh, spur that interest on through this um, episode, but you mentioned that uh, the article came out of uh, something that they Klein himself asked you. You sort of say at the end of the article that he set you off on the journey, something mm-hmm. about him asking you a cl- uh, question and you giving a stupid answer or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Uh, you want to give us a little background story there?
1: Yeah. So um, Klein is not, he was not a historical theologian. So he didn't really get into all of the historical theological debates. For example, the one of the big issues in that um, essay that I wrote for the Festschrift for Meredith Klein uh, is this medieval distinction between condyne merit and congruous merit. Right. And that's a distinction that the medieval theologians came up with that continued on even into the reformed scholastics adopted that. And you yeah. see that language used, for example, in Turretin. Turretin accepts that distinction. Yeah. But Klein was not really aware of these fine technical historical theological discussions over, you know, condign versus congruous merit and so on. But mm-hmm. he asked me what I thought um, about that. And, and uh, I didn't really, I hadn't thought about it myself. And my initial response was not a good one. I, I think I came up with some idea that congruous merit, my initial like stupid, uh, you know, like as a, st- dude, and here I am just like, just uh, throwing out gibberish just uh, yeah. to talk to my professor. And I think I said, maybe congruous merit is um, merit in the eyes of man and condign merit is merit in the eyes of God or something like that. Oh, nice. He's like okay. shaking his head saying, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and uh, the reason this comes up is because of the question um, that I'm sure you're familiar with. You may have even done a, an episode on this in one of your previous podcasts. But the question is, we all accept the idea that when Christ fulfills the terms of the covenant of works by his active and passive obedience, the result is that he has merited eternal life for us. Right. And that's absolute perfect merit. Yeah, There's no like qualification to it. It is perfect merit that absolutely merits our salvation, merits eternal life for all of the elect.
0: Mm.
1: But the question is Christ did that as the second Adam, right? Right. So that implies that, the first Adam was under a covenant of works as well. If Adam, the first Adam, if he had kept the probation and if he had obeyed the law of God perfectly and abstained from eating of the tree, uh, would his obedience be considered meritorious? Yeah. And many theologians, most theologians, question that and say, oh, ah, yeah. that just doesn't sound right. It yeah. just doesn't sound right to say that Adam could have merited anything. Even though he is sinless, and yeah. you know we're not talking about some kind of Pelagian idea of sinners meriting. It's, we're talking about the pre-fall situation of the Adamic covenant of works. It just still makes people kind of recoil and say, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so one of the arguments that many theologians have argued to, to make that point is to say, Adam would have only had congruous merit, but not condign merit. Condign merit is the merit of Christ. Congruous merit is sort of this, it's also called de pacto, which is Latin for from the pact, from the covenant. Yes. So it's only because God voluntarily condescended to Adam and entered into a covenant of works with Adam that Adam Mm. didn't deserve, that God then kind of graciously accepts or would have graciously accepted his obedience as if it were meritorious so that it's congruous merit. Yeah. And uh, that distinction between condign merit and congruous merit is, in my opinion, my whole argument in that article is that is a, um, a medieval distinction. It goes yeah. back to the Middle Ages and it's not a biblical distinction. Right. We should just erase that distinction altogether.
0: Right, right. So when,
1: when Meredith Klein asked me that question as a student and I gave that bad answer as my initial answer, I said, you know what, I need to study this more. <laughs> so I hit the books and I went back and looked at all the medieval discussions wow. and the reformed scholastics and so on. And I concluded that this is one area where I believe that many, but not all of the reformed theologians who otherwise held to a very strong, robust. Federal theology, understanding the merit of Christ, the two Adam structure, and all that, mm. nevertheless, uh, may have made a mistake mm. in uh, accepting a medieval distinction that goes back to the pre-Reformation times, yeah, you know, back to uh, you know the time of Duns Scotus and Occam and the the nominalists and all that stuff. Yeah, uh, a distinction between the congruous merit and condign merit, uh, that I just don't think it's a biblical distinction.
0: Yeah, yeah. And totally. uh,
1: so that's what I, I did that research. And then my answer was to write that essay and I wow. gave it to him, he liked it. And soon thereafter, it was, uh, got into the Festschrift for him. So that Amazing. was kind of a nice way of giving my tribute, <laughs> uh, theological <laughs> yeah. tribute to Meredith Klein to uh, acknowledge my indebtedness to him. But also to add a little bit of historical theology to strengthen and absolutely, um, you know, make make his his system a little bit more robust. But you yeah. know, I found that not all Reformed theolo- theologians held to this idea that the covenant of works with Adam was a voluntary condescension. Mm-hmm. For example, Herman Witsius, in the Economy of the Covenants between God and Man, mm-hmm. he was writing in the late 1600s, mm-hmm. like 1677, somewhere in there. So he's, he's at the tail end of the development of federal theology. Federal theology really get begins in the beginning of the 1600s. Mm-hmm. Um, by the middle of the 1600s, 1640s, 50s, you really have a clear understanding of the three covenants, the covenant of works, the covenant mm-hmm. of redemption, and the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with theologians like um, Coxeus and others, Uh, John Owen, a little bit later. Owen is more close to Witsius in terms of being later into the 1600s. By the time you get to the end of the 1600s and the 1670s and 80s, federal theology is pretty clearly laid out and established Mm. with that three covenant system. And Witsius very clearly uh, says that it's not possible for God, a God of perfect justice to enter into a relationship with a creature made in his own image, without making it possible for him through a probationary process to achieve uh, a confirmed status of mm. eternal communion with God. Mm. It would be unjust. Yeah, How could wow. God make a creature who's in his own image, who desires to have communion with him, but then put him in this state of limbo where he's not confirmed in righteousness. He doesn't have perfect communion with God. Mm-hmm. He's in this state of limbo where he could always sin or he could always obey, but you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Mm. And for God to just sit there and go, I'm just going to leave you there forever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that's incredible uh, to, that, that uh, Vitius would, would make that point. Um, you know, it's, yeah. had you seen that it, before, prior to this uh, look into history or was that something that you actually saw when you were looking at it? That uh, was part at least... of my research. Wow. I, I Interesting. Yeah. so. It's yeah. probably something that you read over again and you don't see it until you're actually looking for it. But uh, mm-hmm. that, that is amazing that he would make that. Wanna, I'm, I'm keen to go and have a look at that. Um, that's yeah, very, very I helpful. And I believe
1: there's another reform scholastic as well named Heidegger who okay. held us something similar. Wow. Uh, his works are not translated, so they're harder to find, but I did find a snippet of a quote of Heidegger in um, Heppe's Reform Dogmatics. Yes,
0: yes, I've got that, yeah
1: which is like a selection of yeah. reformed theologians. Fascinating book too. It's <laughs> yeah. got so much and there's interesting some stuff. questions about the methodology and there's a little bit of, you know, there's yeah. some um, criticisms of that book about the way yes. that he went about selecting his sources. Right. But recognizing those faults, you can still use it. Absolutely. And there was one paragraph in there from Heidegger that said something similar to Witsius.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah, that's good to yeah. know. It, again, not that you're wanting to pin so much on uh, you know, finding uh, an ally in history, yeah. but it is just really encouraging when you see that sort of thing, right. that, that these geniuses, um, when it came to covenant thought, uh, if they picked up on that, then there's something to work with. Uh, definitely, yeah. it, it highlights the issue. Um, maybe just to... Definitely want to circle back on the issue of the law gospel contrast and um, and the two atoms, Because, I mean, that's where where it hits home for us at the end of the day. Anyone listening yeah. to this, this is where it's going to count. Um, you know, how we understand the gospel, uh, our assurance, uh, just everything really is is yeah. is pinned on this. Uh, so I don't want anyone to think that this is a, an academic, scholarly, sort of no one really cares debate. This is a highly relevant sort of lead up to, to the big issue. Um, really, as you mentioned already, um, Klein's big, uh, idea there, or part of the conception of his, his covenant theology is that, is that, um, you know, Adam must have merited what he, what he, what he, well when he, when he was given that eschatological, when he would have, if he would have, my goodness, what am I even saying? Uh, let me step back. You know what I mean? Uh, if he, he would have, uh, obeyed, um, then it's, he would have received that as something that he merited and and this right. is important because we're saying that ultimately you know christ is the last adam and you know right. if we take that away we remove the flaw. i love the way that um i think it was either klein in um covenant theology under attack or you quoted in this article where you said something along the lines of um if justification is the is the you know the big issue for for uh, the reformation then the covenant of works is is the big issue uh for the actual doctrine yeah. of justification
1: yeah, I would say that the doctrine of the covenant of works is the doctrine on which the doctrine of justification stands or falls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that's a fantastic way to
0: put it, right? Yeah. <laughs> because it, it, taps, it taps right into yeah. what, what every Protestant or every reform right. guy loves. Uh, and and we, we get to see, okay, well, what's holding the, the thing uh, up? You know, right. that we treasure so much uh, let's not take that for granted um, that article is worth mentioning as well uh, Meredith yes. Lines, Covenant Theology, Covenant Under, Theology Attack.
1: Under Attack absolutely
0: yeah uh, it's also it's one of the two more...
1: places it's on the the OPC website New Horizons yeah. published in 1994 I believe well wow. and it's also on my website with um, some sections at the very end that were edited out before okay. they were published by the New Horizons cool so um
0: let's go check that out i think
1: there were some critical comments that klein made about john murray and <laughs> editors of new horizons at the time felt that that was politically incorrect so they just kind of removed right. that paragraph right. but um <laughs> yeah uh, that article covenant theology under attack is so great because it's it's simple it's easy to understand meredith yeah. is not using his usual no. highfalutin like you yeah. said the triple barrel words yeah. all that is gone yes. he just gets right to the point makes it very simple and clear and understandable and he shows how you do have to understand the covenant of works with adam yeah. in order to understand christ as the second adam yes. and what he has done for us uh, through yep. his active and passive obedience and Fantastic. just just so helpful and so clear and simple
0: yeah, that's one of the, the big Real. reasons. It's just it gets yeah. you right at the heart of his system yeah. in many ways and also in an accessible way, which is like, wow, yeah. uh, thank you, Meredith Klein, for writing that article. Uh, one of the guys he interacts with in that article, um, just take us on a quick tangent, is um, uh, Daniel Fuller yes. and um, and even John Piper as a disciple of Fuller. But um, yeah. just a, a bit of a thought while you were talking there, uh, you did your Ph.D. at Fuller Seminary, right?
1: Yes, uh-huh.
0: Was Am I right in saying that uh, Daniel Fuller is was he like the son of the guy that founded Fuller Seminary? Or, yes, so there was that connection. He was the son
1: of Charles Fuller. Charles Fuller was the founder, right, back in the nineteen forties or something. Yeah, uh, he was the son of Charles Fuller, and he had his heyday as a professor there somewhere in the seventies and eighties. Right. So by the time I came along, he was long gone.
0: Right. Okay. And, totally. I've just um. I'm, uh, Just started looking at his book. Uh that big one. I think it's the one that uh Klein actually references, uh, the gospel as a continuum or law gospel continuum. And um so I had to get a second hand copy and find
1: it. Law and gospel contrast or continuum. That's it.
0: That's the line. He's yeah. saying it's
1: continuum. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally, and
0: it's it just made, it made me think about it because you're actually writing the the exact opposite, right? You're, right. you're writing the antithetical article, yeah. you could say. Yeah. And um, it's just kind of funny that you went to uh, Fuller. Did you get any um, static? Uh, with was there much of Fuller's influence in that regard? I don't think anybody even knew who he was. Interesting. I mean, that was
1: like thirty years ago or something. Right. So
0: yeah, it's just very Big Ten. I mean, um, nobody,
1: nobody there currently thinks about daniel fuller anymore
0: <laughs> wow yeah okay. I mean, maybe some of
1: the old professors that knew him maybe they would have but yes yeah okay it wasn't an issue well
0: there we go so that, that would be an interesting uh, uh experiment for anyone listening go read yeah. uh, daniel uh, fuller's book and then read lee iron's article and see where you see where you end up uh yeah. because i think this this really takes that on uh, in the best way possible, or, or Meredith Klein's um, uh, Covenant Theology Under Attack is also great for this. But anyway, so yeah. moving, moving on here, um, in terms of just uh, one of the things that comes up, I think, and you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, is that people hear you arguing for, they hear Meredith Klein arguing for merit and law and the covenant of works. And they're mm-hmm. going, oh my goodness, I, we don't want to get legalistic. <laughs> You know, and they, they 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 want to defend grace, and uh, they want to keep grace in there. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, it couldn't be more ironic, um, right? You know, they're they're sneaking um, the the whole uh, medieval synthesis right back in there. Um, do you want to just help uh, anyone listening to understand that and and why that's ironic and why why it's really not the case that you're yeah. trying to defend some legalism?
1: <laughs> right. Maybe the the simplest way to get at it is to think about something that everyone knows is the heart of the gospel, which is the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. Okay. That Christ bore the wrath of God in our place. Okay. Well, what are you saying when you say that? What you're saying is, is that God is a holy God. He is a God of perfect holiness and justice and absolute truth. And he has an abhorrence to anything that is contrary to the truth of who he is. Even the smallest speck of sin is an annihilation of his godhood, right? Even the smallest attempt. I mean, Adam, all all he did was just disobey one small little command to not eat of the specific fruit of the specific tree. What's so harmful in that? Well, it was an attempt on Adam's part to annihilate God. It was a rebellion against God. It was making himself God, right? Right. And God's justice and God's very Godhood, <laughs> just the fact that he is God, yeah. demands a response of just wrath and punishment against sin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when we are focusing on the heart of the gospel and we think about the heart of the gospel being the death of Christ for our sins, and we think about how he bore the wrath of God in our place, that he took the punishment that we deserved, that he experienced hell for us. In our place as our substitute and as our representative we're we're saying that what the gospel is is that God is a God of perfect justice and who requires merit who requires perfect obedience and anything that goes against that must be punished yeah by his wrath and praise God that it was punished in our substitute in our mediator in our surety who took our place not in us yeah that's the gospel the Amen. point is, is that the gospel of grace presupposes this whole idea of justice, merit, absolute holiness, all those things that at first sound to us like, oh, that sounds legalistic and, and I don't want that. I want grace. Well, if you want grace, you have to understand what the backdrop of that grace is, Yeah. which is the justice of God. Yeah. One of the yeah. terms that is used in these older theologians, I was mentioning Gwitzius and Turretin yeah. and others. In the 17th century, they had a big debate going on with these guys called the Socinians. Mm-hmm. If you read the writings of these 17th century reformed theologians, you'll find they're always talking about the Socinians and the Remonstrants. <laughs> right. The Remonstrants are the Arminians. But those are the two big enemies out there.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Because before, like in the days of Calvin, the big enemy was the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholics.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: by the 17th century, the big enemies are the Socinians and the Remonstrants. Right and actually they have some interesting similarities. They're not exactly the same. The Sicinians are more radical and liberal than the, than the Remonstrants. but they do have some similarities, which is that they don't really believe in this idea of the absolute justice of God. And therefore, when they turn to understanding the work of Christ, they don't really understand the work of Christ within the context of that. Yes. One of the terms that is used by these reformed theologians from the 17th century, the federal theologians, mm-hmm is this term satisfaction mm-hmm. satisfaction is really the key because this idea of satisfaction gets at the heart of it yeah. which is that god's justice must be satisfied and how is it satisfied it's not satisfied in us by our own merit by our own attempts to pay for our sins and be righteous which yeah. we can't do either one
0: right totally. we
1: can't pay for our sins because that would mean going to hell forever right we can't be righteous because we're already born with the guilt of Adam's sin imputed to us so that's off the table Mm -hmm. and even if that wasn't off the table or even if that was erased somehow we still can't do it Mm -hmm. but christ as our substitute satisfies the requirements and this idea of satisfaction covers both aspects not just the passive obedience of christ by which Mm -hmm. he bears the wrath in our place but also the active obedience of christ by which he positively fulfills the righteousness that was required of Adam in the covenant of works
0: Mm, mm.
1: before the fall.
0: That's great. Yeah.
1: And so satisfaction is a great term that helps to get at this idea. Christ's work for us has to be understood in terms of the satisfaction of this law principle or this works principle or this justice principle that is higher than than us, it's it's God Himself, really. It's just yeah, God, right, right? Right. It's God's own conformity to His own holy nature.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: that's what He demanded of Adam. That's what Adam failed to achieve, but Christ, as the second Adam, has satisfied it. He was born under the law, not only to bear its curse for us, but also to fulfill its positive requirements for us, so that we might be reckoned as righteous. So that God, when He looks at us, He looks at us as those who have satisfied his perfect law, Mm. not because we've done it in ourselves, but because Christ has done it in our place.
0: Yeah. Amen. And that's such a, that's so helpful in just getting at the heart of this. I mean, at the end of the day, all you're doing there is is speaking about the gospel and, and, uh, but the gospel properly understood. And it's interesting that when people start to flounder around with this stuff, the first thing to go is the active, um, work of, uh, substitutionary work of Christ. I mean, uh, you know, people are okay to talk about Jesus having died for our sins, but really what you're talking about there is moving us beyond probation. It's getting us into that, 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 um, uh, the true assurance of faith, I suppose, at the end of the day. Um, we, right. how, how are you ever going to um, rest, you know, and knowing that, that, that you're going to stand before this holy God that you've just described if right. uh, someone hasn't actively or at least obeyed where you have failed to obey, not, not only died right. for your sins. So amen. Yeah. Um, Kendall, I see you there, brother. Um, he says, like Klein said, what you keep from the front door, uh, you let in the back
1: that's right <laughs> <laughs> totally. yep.
0: yeah absolutely that's um, a
1: quote from his Governor Theology Under Attack article
0: that's yeah. right excellent yeah um, excellent good to see you as well Kendall um, so you know uh, having that up front and uh, hopefully that, that will just help people um, I know we, we're quite a far way into this already don't want to uh, take up too much of your time but, but in terms of just uh, developing that absolutely. a little
1: bit Oh, I'm, I'm quarantined man <laughs> worry about it <laughs> that's true we
0: should try, let's, let's try like a 24-hour live stream on, on theology and see how that goes let's
1: just keep going
0: <laughs> we end up with these with these bags in our yeah. eyes but but hey it'll be satisfying um so we'll see we'll see how many of these guys actually run with us all the way through that 24 hours what do you think guys let's do it a marathon um but you know one of the one of the things that i think could take you on a 24-hour journey uh well even more than that i suppose And um, I'm just aware that it could get very technical very quickly. Um, So, um, you know, cautious in that respect. But um, I'm also very aware of the way in which this helps to to understand why the Westminster is phrased the way that it is, uh, why the 1689, we're part of the Reformed Baptist here, uh, why the 1689 talks about a voluntary condescension um, of, of God to enter into the covenant. Um, you know, where is that coming from? And, uh, you know, it was just it was mind blowing for me to, to look at the way that you spoke about the, the debate uh, demeritum and the way that you, uh, you know, spoke about this, this intrinsic uh, battle or this, this, this debate around uh, soteriology. Um, concerning uh, the issue of merit and congruent, and I know there are a lot of camps involved. That you got the Thomistic sort of uh, intellectualist guys, and then you got the voluntarist Franciscan guys. And uh, there's a big, there's a big story there. Maybe, maybe um, I don't know if this is putting too much on you. Now I don't know if you've. Uh, I would have to reread this before I could ever try and summarize. But maybe you, you have a shot at it. Um, are you able to tell that story real quick, just to just because later on you mentioned we need to you know be airlifted out of that battle to kind of be planted in, in a new area, as you mentioned earlier, just sort of starting again, reject the whole thing, reject right. its baggage. You know, that story is so fascinating. There, uh, Are you able to just give us a quick run through on that one?
1: Um, let's see if I can remember the details. I wrote that article now about 20 years ago. So, <laughs>
0: right.
1: And,
0: so, and, <laughs> and would I be didn't
1: read it just before coming on with you. So I may not have all the details right. But right. basically simplifying it in my own mind, uh the question of how do you, how do you define what merit is? Forget yes. about whether or not anybody has it. Let's not even talk about whether it's Adam, Christ, or us or whoever. Just mm-hmm. what is this concept right. of merit? Yes. Well, kind of a simplistic um way of thinking about it would be to say, and this is sort of like you said Thomas Aquinas with his intellectualist idea, yeah. Uh would be to say it's like um uh looking at scales so merit is when what you are doing or what anybody is doing whether it's christ or adam or us or whoever whatever somebody's doing is weight on this side it equals this over here on the other side because god is looking at it and this is the idea of intellectualism is
0: that god Mm -hmm. is looking
1: at it with his eyes and saying oh okay this amount over here equals this amount over here right and if you do that then you end up saying you will end up denying the possibility of merit for adam uh you'll probably also deny it with christ in a way but uh, let's not get there yeah but for sure with adam because yeah the value of what adam was asked to do doesn't seem heavy enough to quote unquote merit the reward the reward is eternal life forever with god right in a yeah. confirmed state of righteousness basically heaven shall we say yes. heaven? yes yes But all Adam is doing to get that is this paltry work over here of just not eating of this one tree and not sinning for a while. Right. And then that just seems so feathery and so light. It just like, you know, it goes like this, the scales go like this. It doesn't seem equal. Yes. Uh, So that's one way of measuring merit is by looking at it sort of in quantitative terms or intellectual terms, where you're just measuring the value of what's done with the value of the reward. And so, Others have come along, so the the voluntarists were medieval theologians who were influenced by Duns Scotus and William of Ockham and that whole tradition of theology called nominalism Mm. that um, said, it doesn't matter. There's no intrinsic value to anything. All that matters is what God declares it to be based upon the pact, de Mm. pacto, that is the covenant. So if God voluntarily enters into a covenant with you and says, Hey, I want you to, Oh, I don't know. Snap your fingers three times and I'll give you eternal life. Right. Then boom, you just snap your fingers three times. You got eternal life and you and quote unquote merited it because God said it.
0: Right. God and you mentioned said there, said there are a few yeah. crazy situations that came out of that something to do with the cucumber yeah. or something like that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, this is all part of a larger discussion within, um, uh, medieval theology called the absolute power of God.
0: Right, right, right. That's, and, and the, and the pastoral is, problem that you highlight there is yeah, fascinating. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The question is, does God have absolute power? In other words, can God do anything that he wants? Mm. Can God say to Adam, this is, this is one of the things they discuss, could God say to Adam, um, even if you uh, are perfectly righteous and you don't sin, I'm still going to send you to hell.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's really and at the nub of the issue, According to isn't the
1: absolute it? power yeah. of God view, yeah. they would say, yes, God could do that. Right. Calvin rejected that. Calvin yeah. said this whole idea of the absolute power of God is a figment of the medieval scholastics' minds. It's not true because it implies that God's attribute of power is not constrained by his other attributes, such as justice and goodness.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: And so he rejected I, that concept of the absolute power of god and said god can't just declare anything to be anything
0: totally yeah i mean so, it's just um so yeah. you know just to connect that uh, as well um i'm sure we'll circle back on this but but i mean really that's the big thing as you mentioned a little bit earlier um if there is if there is a sense in which um you know god can you know we're talking about um you know why why does god have to voluntary uh, condescend to enter into a covenant uh, you know what's behind that really is 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 kind of what you're getting at with all of this and um and part of the thing that i found so interesting is that the, that you were saying that there was a it's almost like it's trying to just stop us from from uh, worrying about this absolute power of god because it it's like Totally God could uh, not enter into that covenant He has the power uh, right it, it wouldn't be a matter of his justice. it would just you know he has to almost superimpose that onto what he 's done and um, and and so they answered that question with this idea of a covenant, which is what 's so fascinating to me, uh, even right. though you know it 's not exactly the way we would formulate it now. They were using that covenant idea as you've just said to kind of stop people from worrying about that uh, right. because God has voluntarily entered into this, uh, this covenant so we don't have to worry about the fact that he could do that because um, you know he has right. assured us that he wouldn't but it's still that but, like, lingering one, way issue. To
1: answer the, one way to ask the question is if God decided not to send a sinless Adam to hell this is within this nominalistic framework okay, right, where God right. could do that yes if God decided not to would that be an act of justice or an act of grace yeah wow so according to this nominalistic voluntaristic view it would be an act of grace because he has every right to send a sinless, innocent Adam to hell. And so if he decides not to, he's wow. being gracious to you.
0: That is crazy. Yeah. He's being gracious wow. to
1: Adam. But that's ridiculous. That's totally, a, that's an absolute denial of the perfect justice of God.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, wow. And so, you know, again, that's just a, uh... Uh, kind of a heads up as to why I mean it's amazing that because as you said Klein wasn't investigating these things necessarily I mean he wasn't going down this historical track to, right. to see the debate and yet he comes at it from a biblical theological perspective right. and he's hitting this wall with this right. because it's just yeah. He's like, wait a minute! We've obviously picked up on something that is some weird baggage from a different battlefield, as it were. And um, and he's just why he's not he's not having it, even though it's in the confession. Um, And and so it's just interesting that as you look at that, you see that that actually bears out. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: That's why I brought up the word satisfaction before, because in a way, that kind of helps to just avoid all these debates. Yes. The term merit is a little bit misleading and it comes out of the medieval context right, Even right. the very con- the very term meritum you know you, you mentioned this we're talking about the locus in systematic theology of de meritum right you could yeah. have a whole chapter on de meritum totally. that's a medieval construct right um it's probably better to skip that and just talk about satisfaction right because that's all it is so if if adam had kept the covenant and passed probation then he would have satisfied the requirements and he would have obtain the reward and the reward would have been given to him as a matter of justice. Yes. And that would be satisfaction, right? Right. In grace, in the gospel, now that the fall has happened and we're all under sin, Christ satisfies through his active and passive obedience. He earns the reward, which is the salvation of all the elect, granting faith to all of them and perseverance in faith and eternal life. And so sat the justice of God is satisfied by the work of Christ and so the two Adams are perfectly parallel yes we could apply the term satisfaction to both of them equally yes. both of them are under a covenant of works mm-hmm. to their appropriate situation right Adam's covenant of works was a covenant of works for a sinless covenant head Christ's covenant of works is the covenant of redemption which has in view this idea of God saving Sinners who have fallen. So sin is in view, and now there's the need for a penal substitutionary sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But there's still the need to satisfy the positive requirement. So in either case, you have two covenants of works, one with the first ad and one with the second. Mm -hmm. God's justice is perfectly satisfied in both. And we don't even need to talk about merit. Yeah. Wow. But (laughs) since merit is the term that is used historically, then okay, we bring it in, we could apply it to both. But that's all we're saying by the term. Right. Is that is that the terms of the covenant of works are perfectly satisfied so that the reward that was offered in the covenant of works is being granted to the law keeper on the basis of justice. Yes. That's what merit means.
0: Totally. I find that so helpful. I think that that's absolutely right. I suppose one of the complicating factors as you bring out here is that, you know, well, for our situation anyway, I mean, we would subscribe to a confession that really is wording this in a certain way. Um, And so, you know, you, there is that, you know, if we just, you know, if they just worded it with satisfaction and, and just left it alone, uh, that would be that would be great. But it's almost well, like whatever you... They do. That's true. And you also point out that um, <laughs> the the law is written on their hearts as well, which I found to be a fascinating point. Even though they bring in some of this um, medieval uh, discussion uh, in terms of that uh, voluntary condescension uh, to enter into the covenant, the, the law is written on Adam's heart. Which mm-hmm. which means that they sort of are copying onto what, what, what we're saying yeah. here anyway. Right. Um, and, and there's a bit of a tension in the in the language. But I, you know, what I found so helpful about this um, this this discussion in your um, or this article is that when you feel a little bit of discomfort with the wording, typically you're asked as to, you know, why that is and you have to explain yourself and uh, you know, just, just to be able to have access to a bit of the story that gives rise to that wording. I think right. it's just very helpful yeah. coming alongside whatever we would argue for in terms of the the, the covenant theology itself, you know, based yeah. from uh, coming at it from a more biblical theological perspective.
1: Yeah. So you're talking about, um, I don't know if it's the same numbering for the 1689, but in the Westminster Confession, it's chapter seven. Yes, paragraph same, one. Yeah. Is that the same for? Yeah. Okay, 1689 is the same numbering, but it says the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition. And fruition there means that idea of confirmed, being confirmed and having eternal communion with God. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: They can never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, Mm -hmm. which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. And so, yeah, I think I would, I definitely do have um, a scruple with that language there, especially the language of voluntary. Yeah. I don't think that it's a voluntary condescension on God's part. Sure, yeah. it's condescension, but it's right. not a voluntary condescension.
0: And it's almost. Especially
1: um, after you've, if you've already have in view the decree to uh, to create. Now, yes, if God had decided yes. not to create.
0: Right, right, then right. There's right. no
1: need for this, but. It's a big point. The, de- the decree to create is voluntary, yeah. obviously. Right. So maybe you could say that part is voluntary. Yes. But once you've created man in your own image, then it's not just to just leave him in this state without giving him an opportunity and a way through the covenant of works to enter into that fruition state of yeah. being confirmed in righteousness and having eternal, unbroken, unbreakable communion with god forever
0: right so it goes uh, hand in hand with the with the image of god and um just understanding that with its its promise um you know we we did do a discussion on that the other day but uh, you know i think uh, that's what really made the penny drop for me because i I suppose when i first heard the pushback on uh, on this you know i was like well obviously god has to condescend to enter into a uh, some sort of arrangement with man. I mean, God is in, in uh, be sure. greater than, yeah. and it's yeah. really the, not that we're challenging that point. It's more just the timing uh, at, at some level. And, and, you know, God freely entered into um, this arrangement with with creation, the whole thing is covenantal. If you've read any part of of Klein, uh, you know that gets reinforced from the framework right. theory all the way through to the the Sabbath to the Imago Day to to just everything that's going on. It's a covenantal act from beginning to end. So the covenant right. of works is established in creation. I think the issue is is just that you know to to ignore all of that. And to, you know, almost just go ahead and almost like promise, not promise, you know, hey, here's, right. here's, here's what's coming, right. you know, glory, cloud and all. And, right. <laughs> uh, and yet I might just not follow through with that. I think that's where, you know, once you get that, that idea, you yeah. see, okay, well, wait a minute, that is, that's really, that's, that's viewing God in a way that's, that's quite far. Yeah. The and, way
1: Witsius puts it is that by making Adam in his, in his own image, God implanted within Adam a desire for eternal communion with himself. Yeah. That's the very essence of what it means to be made in the image of God, right?
0: For sure. Yeah, absolutely. So here
1: God is making this creature that desires eternal communion, or as the confession calls it, fruition of God. Mm. Enjoyment. That's just the word for enjoyment to enjoy mm-hmm. God forever as um, his covenant God. He put in him that desire. Would it be right for God then to frustrate that desire? And to say, ah, I gave you the desire, but I'm not going to give you the opportunity.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. To have that
1: desire satisfied.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, that, that helps, right? I mean, then you, yeah. I, it's almost, I mean, I don't even know. I've never really seen a good comeback on that point, to be honest. I mean, I think that, that that's yeah. what has to be wrestled with, with with anyone who does want to hold, hold to the existing uh, conception of things. Yeah. Um, because yeah, how you'd almost have to deny that there was that desire in man's heart, right. or there was that covenantal um, beginning, um, to, right. to, to have to say that uh, that this gets superimposed on it. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, there, there is um, obviously a lot more to talk about uh, when it comes to that that backstory. And let me again recommend that you go in and check out uh, Lee's article. Um, maybe just in terms of uh, kind of moving towards a close um we've been airlifted out of that now and uh we are getting planted on our own hill and uh ready to make our own fight and uh and you know wanting to stand our own ground you've mentioned satisfaction um what would you be able to just summarize um and and hopefully this wouldn't be too new for anyone that's been listening to this for a while um but what what would uh what, what have you argued and what would Klein have uh, argued um is the right way to conceive of this whole if you know if we want to reword the, the confession, let's maybe set it that way. If you if you have a you know you use your golden opportunity, somehow the whole world unites, we're gonna we're gonna reword the confession. How would we wanna reword it?
1: Oh boy. I don't like being put in that situation, <laughs> in that position. All right. Now, let me pull it back. To That's too the much. Confession. How would you do it? Mm. <laughs> you know, well, and you've got yeah. three
0: minutes too. No, I'm joking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh it just, just I, won't hold yeah. you to it in terms of the absolute language there, but just in, in broad terms.
1: All I can say is that, you know, whenever I talk about this with my presbytery or my session my my church authorities yeah i just say that word voluntary doesn't seem right to me right Uh, obviously um obviously adam had no right to be created
0: right there we go
1: but once created you can't say he had no right to be in a covenant with god yes and so um i would just strike the word voluntary i guess Maybe right, that and would be all freely. <laughs> well, that, that, that would be an
0: elegant solution to that one. Yeah. Uh, just, just one word uh, omitted. Yeah. Um, and
1: then I would say, but I think that in terms of the underlying system of doctrine, hmm. um, the the Westminster Confession, Westminster Standards, very clearly do teach this idea when they talk about the satisfaction of Christ. Right. That there word we satisfied and satisfaction is used throughout. It's used in the chapter on justification, the obedience and satisfaction of Christ being yes. imputed. Yes. It's used in the section on uh, Christ the mediator, chapter eight, paragraph mm-hmm. six,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that he has satisfied the law of God. He was born under the law and satisfied. He did perfectly fulfill it and satisfied it and thereby obtained an eternal inheritance for all of his people. And they understand this concept of satisfaction within the context of a two-adam construct. Larger yeah. Catechism, question number 31, with whom was the covenant of grace made? It was made with Christ as a second Adam and with all the elect in him as his seed. Yeah. And so all the building blocks are in place there to understand right. this idea that there would have been merit in the pre-fall covenant of works. Yeah. They just don't use that term. And they mistakenly put in that word voluntary in chapter seven, paragraph one, Um, But in terms of all the rest of their whole understanding of this federal theology of the two Adam construct,
0: Mm. uh,
1: it's clearly there. The law of God has to be perfectly satisfied.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And that what we mean by merit, just satisfying the law of God. That's what, that's what merit is. Satisfying the law of God and obtaining the inheritance as a result.
0: Absolutely. You know, one of the things that, um, that you also mentioned, I forgot to sort of bring this up a little bit earlier, but um, what I thought I, th- I found very helpful was, was really, even though this whole debate in the, in the middle ages is taking place after the fall in, in terms of their mind and they're thinking about a, a soteriology there. right? Um, and, you know, this kind of landed somehow uh, you know, pre fall in terms of our um, wording in the, in the confession um, you could see how even at the beginning, you know, they're, they're, they're taking things out of the category of ontology and thinking about things covenantally. And this is obviously one of the big ideas that appeal to them. And, um, and so you have this embrace of that idea. Like there's no longer a sacramental system, mm-hmm. you know, there's this covenantal signs right. and seals and everything. You know, there, there is an embrace of what we're saying here. And, and, yeah, and so there really shouldn't, yeah. you can almost just feel it was an oversight at some level and you know, why not? You know, people mm-hmm. can, can overlook things all the time. And um, so to make too much of a sacred cow of that word and, and insist on it, I think is, uh, as you say, especially when set against the rest of the theology of the confession, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it it probably should be revised at some point because it does carry on that, uh, that, that. It takes over that baggage, which would be one thing, but I think the other thing that makes it kind of a hot topic or has made it a hot topic, maybe it will continue to be so, is that, you know, together with that has been all of the mono-covenantal, you know, Developments that have happened, theonomy, and uh, even uh, certain uh, forms of neo-Calvinism, and uh, you know, just there's this constant push, or, or even uh, N.T. Wright, or you know, with, you know, Daniel Fuller. Almost wherever you look, you you see some sort of attack on on this idea. And yeah. so, probably, it's going to become more and more important for us to be quite quite clear on that, especially when it comes to a confession.
1: I wouldn't even say it's like more important now than before i would say this is a perennial problem that's true from the very beginning of church history until today yeah. where it's a it's the t- it's the constant tendency towards some form of synergism yeah. Pelagianism. you know i mentioned socinianism yeah. the remonstrance arminianism the roman catholic church which is also synergistic but then yeah. the sacraments are a, are a part of it these are all just different variations of the same old thing yeah it even goes yeah. back to the Galatian heresy, right? Right,
0: to that, yeah. Which is basically
1: yeah. what? All of these things have in common one one thread that, that carries through with all of them, which is that they lower the standard. Yeah. They say, right. well, the, keeping the law in this perfect sense, perfect obedience to God, that's not possible.
0: Right. So we
1: got to lower the standard, and God will accept it if you just do X, Y, or Z, and then each system has their own whatever that thing is. You know, the Aminians sure. say it's just using your free will to believe in God or to believe in the promises. Uh, the uh, Roman Catholic church say, it's just, you know, going to the sacraments and then when you sin, going to confession and, and uh, getting your grace back. And, but everybody has the same, they have a different answers to what is what it is that God will accept in place of perfect righteousness. Yeah. But what they've done is they've lowered the standard to begin with.
0: Yeah. Instead of yeah. saying,
1: no, God is a God of perfect holiness and justice. And that's why I started out by mentioning penal substitutionary atonement, because we as evangelicals, we all agree on it at that point. Yes. Everybody has in their, clear, in their mind this very clear idea that God requires perfect uh, something, maybe right. not obedience, but at least perfect punishment has to be meted out on Christ. Yeah. We see that clearly in the cross. Well, let's just apply that to the next level, which is that God also requires perfect obedience. He not only requires that the wrath be satisfied, he requires perfect obedience. Yeah. And that can only be given to us. That can only be, we can only achieve that by faith in Christ. That is by receiving the gift of Christ's righteousness imputed to our account. So that automatic, once you get that in place, once you get this idea that there's a works principle, that God requires perfect righteousness, once you get that in place, then it automatically solves all these problems and it wipes away all the synergism and the Pelagianism and the Arminianism. Yeah. It wipes it all off the table and it just says Christ. Christ wow. is the answer. And the only way you can get Christ is by receiving him by faith alone.
0: Yeah. Man. So, what a great note. To, I mean, that is uh, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, that's that's really the heart of what you were saying there and really uh, the whole idea. That's why this matters, you know, it, it is at yeah. the foundation of it all. Um, it's very encouraging. To hear you uh, just unpack that for us as well. Just um, really appreciate your time with us, Lee. It's been it's been really helpful, and um, I, I trust that uh, uh, there we go. I see, Aries mentioned. Uh, uh, oh, how do we even pronounce that? It's not a marathon. It's a uh, Meridathon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, uh, <laughs> You know, See, they're, they're, um, it's, but we got one greater than Meredith you know, in our midst. That's the problem. We, we need to come up with a, an irons-a-thon. Iron Man. There we go. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's right. That's uh,
0: right. See, I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. I better call this Chris yeah. before my brain starts turning to fudge. But um, so, yeah, uh, Lee, thanks so much for joining us, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And, um, and thanks for helping us get sturdy on that main point. Um, sure. I hope you'll yeah. think about doing this again sometime. We'd love to have you back on the show. It's just so helpful to, to you. I would to love to do thoughts.
1: it. Because there's so many things we could talk about. Like, you know, we could talk about assurance. Oh, yeah. We could talk about the question of, are there conditions in the covenant of grace? And the whole debate about faith and repentance and oh, are man. those conditions or not. We could talk about the law gospel contrast. We could talk about <laughs> the third use of the law. Yeah. All of these <laughs> things, they, they, they all, all have to be understood in yeah. light of this, this yeah. hot core of this, like t- we're, we're right now we're in like the, the core of the, of the uh, nuclear power plant
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: because yeah, this true. is where it all is, right? Totally, the covenant totally. of works being filled by Christ, satisfaction, the wrath of God being satisfied, the obedience of Christ as a meritorious obedience. That's the, the nuclear reactor. But then there's all these things that flow out from it. Yeah. You know, steam comes out and then it powers the turbines and all these things about the Christian life, how we preach the gospel, how we teach our people to, uh, obey the law out of gratitude as the law of christ not as the mm. law of works mm. all of these things are all implications of this thing of this federal theology and the two two adam construct
0: lee i've so just uh it, i figured it, out it, what it, you it, need to down. do with your uh with your quarantine time i just figured it out what you need to do is write a systematic theology
1: you could you could write a systematic theology starting with this and And building i'm
0: I'm hearing the first chapter right here i mean this is it (laughs) this is the setup um man anyway all right so uh we're gonna play out with that um and um again thanks for joining us if you've joined live um and trust if you listen to this a little bit later on the podcast um that this will be uh, helpful to you. Um, do remember to uh, subscribe if you want updates for the live podcasts uh, or at least the live um, live streams on YouTube. Um, and also just uh, keep in mind that you know it's coming through on on a few different platforms. So go check out two sojourner dot com uh, to see all of the ways in which you can subscribe and and ways you can get access to to these things, make it a little bit more helpful for you. Um, and again, Check out upperregister.com, probably the most helpful website. If I do nothing for you in my whole life and I've just pointed you to that (laughs) website, I think I feel like I've done enough and uh, this whole thing has done its thing. But uh, with that in mind, thanks again, Lee. I'm going to play out.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Mike.